Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and this is a special episode for Inauguration Week. Um, Father Kevin O'Brien is um, being officially inaugurated into his role as president. He started a couple months ago, but uh, this week will be the celebration, and it's timed with his birthday, which is on Tuesday, October 8th. So I'm running this episode that I did with him last spring. Uh, you can hear his his thoughts on joining Santa Clara and some of his background and history. It's kind of fun since doing this episode. I've actually seen Father O'Brien around quite a bit. He lives just down the street from me on campus, so sometimes I'll run into him in the morning or uh, at the student involvement fair the first week, and I'll just see him around. He's a great guy. He's gotten really involved in uh, student life and made a huge effort to connect with students, and that's been very appreciated by uh, everyone on campus, I think. A little background on Father O'Brien. He was born in Montreal, Quebec, and raised in North Beach, Florida. Uh, He attended Georgetown University, got a bachelor's degree in government, and then studied law at the University of Florida. He got a master's degree in philosophy from Fordham University and a master's of divinity from the Weston Jesuit School of Theology, um, and joined the Jesuits in 1996, was ordained as a priest in 2006, and he has worked all over the world, from Los Angeles to Bolivia, Guatemala, India, and Mexico. And then after eight years at Georgetown, he was named the dean of the Jesuit School of Theology at Santa Clara University in 2016. And then in March 2019, he assumed the role of president. Here's a few fun facts on Father O'Brien's background. Um, this first one I actually just learned after the interview, but O'Brien's late father, Larry, spent 35 years working as a personal manager to the legendary golfer Jack Nicholas, for whom O'Brien's older brother, Andrew, still works. Second, during his Jesuit formation, O'Brien served as a chaplain for the Jesuit Refugee Service in immigration detention centers in Los Angeles, and he's also worked serving migrants on the Arizona-Mexico border, both at his, in his time at Georgetown and uh, now at Santa Clara. And also, O'Brien was featured in a mic video in 2017 where he delivered a measured um, response to the war on Christmas, commenting on that, and the video received over 10 million views, and you can check that out. I linked the video on the website. In this conversation, we discuss how Silicon Valley values of innovation and new things and money uh, square with Jesuit values of faith and compassion and justice. We talk about how students should choose a career. We talk about why spirituality can be like an adventure and uh, O'Brien's own improbable journey to becoming a Jesuit. If you're a student, you should check out all the events on campus this week, and if you're not, you can just enjoy this conversation and ask your favorite Santa Clara friend um, about the week's festivities. So here's the episode, and thanks for listening. We'll be back with new content later this week. Having a good idea doesn't get you And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? One of the distinctive features of Santa Clara is that it is in Silicon Valley, right? This entrepreneurial 
hub in the world. And um, a lot of Silicon Valley um, companies, you know, have a mindset of, you know, making a lot of profits and growing a thousand percent. And so I guess how, how does the Silicon Valley focus on money and innovation and growth and new things kind of match up with Santa Clara's Jesuit core? How do you kind of see those things working together? Well, I I think they're compatible. Um, uh, Actually, the Jesuits began as an entrepreneurial organization within the church. Um, So just a little bit of background. We were founded in the 1500s at the, you know, at the beginning of the Renaissance, the age of exploration, the humanities were on the rise, you know, rediscovery of classical culture in Europe and all that. So there's lots going on. And St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, was you know born into this world. He himself was sort of an adventurer, um, a man deeply ingrained in the world of um, not running away from it. Um, and he founded a religious order of priests who would who would who would meet that that world. Mm-hmm. Jesuits never were in monasteries and mountains. That those are good. Jesuits were never tied to one place. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Jesuits were basically founded as an entrepreneurial organization to meet the needs of the world and of the church that were not being met by anyone else. That's why our training is so darn long. I mean, our, our formation as Jesuits is 10 to 12 years. Um, they gave me a year off because I went to law school, but I, I was a decade in before I was ordained, right? Mm-hmm. The whole purpose there was to uh, train us, to form us, to be able to do a, a lot of different things to meet needs which were not being met. So that's why Jesuits got involved in education, because there really was no formal education in Europe, and, and nor was there places where they landed in India or Japan or China, South America, eventually North America. So they really established education as, a, as an entrepreneurial enterprise, starting something new. We're definitely, you know, embrace tradition, whether it's cultural or religious, but tradition that doesn't bind us like an anchor, but used more as a rudder to guide us, mm-hmm. if that's a good analogy. Mm-hmm. that, um, And so we have to have flexibility to adapt to needs that are not being met. Mm-hmm. And that's why Jesuits have always been or tried to be hospitable to different cultures from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, to go into China wearing the clothes of a Mandarin, not the clothes of a of a, of a cleric from Europe, mm-hmm. you know, to enculturate into a culture, to learn a culture so as to engage it, to not to be afraid of difference. That's very innovative. Mm-hmm. So a part of our DNA in a Jesuit university is to embrace that spirit of uh, innovation as part of our tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, but Silicon Valley brings its own particular context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every Jesuit school has a context. We're not in Washington or Chicago or Kansas City, we're in Silicon Valley. So that context says something to us. So Silicon Valley can help us constantly innovate the way we educate, you know, mm-hmm. to never settle, to always innovate, yet at the same time, not to lose what works and what's good mm-hmm. about education, about certain core principles, about how we educate, keeping mm-hmm. the student at the center, mm-hmm. being adaptable, um, but never adapting for the sake of adaptation, mm-hmm. just to be novel. Um, but to do it for the sake of a good we're trying to aspire to. Mm-hmm. So I think what, what's, what's neat about the Silicon Valley-Santa Clara relationship is they sort of uh, deepen our innovative commitment, mm-hmm. yet we bring to, to ourselves and to Silicon Valley um, the need to be reflective about what we're doing mm-hmm. and to run off to the next shiny object. I don't know if you ever watch, uh, I used to coach soccer, if you watch really, really young kids play soccer, what do they do? They just all 
cluster around the ball. They go to the ball. Mm-hmm. And that means that's a terrible game. Mm-hmm. When you get older, you realize, no, we, we take positions on the field and we don't follow the ball. We, we shouldn't just be running after the next shiny object. Mm-hmm. We got we got we to gotta have a, a, a vision in mind. And I think our vision is grounded in our tradition. So that, that uh, balancing in a, being innovative with being reflective as what we can do really well here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A lot of students during college are going through this process of kind of career discernment and figuring out what they want to do with their lives. And there's a lot of competing, I guess, desires and opportunities. And um, during college, students do have Santa Clara offers many ways for them to get get off campus, to visit different countries, do internships. But then once you move towards senior year and you know you face the real world job applications and all these things it can be scary and i feel like it can be easy to kind of leave your your values that you've kind of built up behind and just want any job that comes your way so kind of how can students think about a career discernment process and like will it all be okay in the end for all the nervous seniors (laughs) so i could say to them it will it will be okay (laughs) Uh if they stay true to who they are and what I hope we've taught them here, you know, in the end, we want uh, we we want to be authentic, and to be authentic simply means that what we do flows from the deepest sense of who we are. That's really authenticity or integrity, if you want, mm-hmm. and and to put you know a religious lens on it, that I think that's how God that's God creates us to be authentic. God wants us to be who God made us to be. God calls us to live and to be in a certain way. And the more authentic we are, the more I think God is delighted. Mm-hmm. And the more happier happier we are, we're at peace. Because sometimes life is hard and we're not always happy, but deep down we're at peace. So I think we want to be authentic. So I think we need to know who we are and what we stand for and what matters most. Mm-hmm. And that's a lifelong process. I'm still figuring it out at my age of... Mm-hmm. Um, in my 50s, you know, I'm still trying to figure it out, but I got a much better sense of who I was when I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. So one is to, to, to put yourself into experiences at Santa Clara where you, you test yourself, you put your descent to yourself, you put yourself out of your comfort zone, you learn from people different than yourself. You have quiet and solitude enough to reflect on what you were doing and who you're becoming. So you really understand, like, who am I most fundamentally? Mm-hmm. Um, and to to really honor that. Uh, and part of that identity is, you know, our, our, what we're meant to do, what we're good at, mm-hmm. right? So there's a, uh, there's a professor at Boston College, Mike, uh, Michael Himes, who has three questions when addressed with this vocation question or mm-hmm. what do I do with my life question. Mm-hmm. He says, ask yourself three questions. What, um, what gives me joy? Am I good at it? And does the world need it? which I think are three great questions. What gives me joy? Mm-hmm. That is deep down. Again, joy is not, is not just fleeting happiness. It, deep down, I, I'm joyful. I'm most myself. Mm-hmm. Am I good at it? Because sometimes, you know, what we really feel passionate about, we need to have the natural <laughs> gifts for, which mm-hmm. is... Um, I wish, yeah, I wish I'd love to be Bono and have a band like you too, but I can't sing, so it's not going to work. I can do other things mm-hmm. that he can't. Um, and then last one, does the world need it? Because I think um, we God gives us a lot of different talents. So part of it is just choosing. Like, I got to do something. I need to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And often I think, I think and I, I don't think this is a question in a lot of 
a lot of us ask enough is, what does the world need more? I could do this or that or this. Well, which, all, all things being equal, I'm good at them all. I could like, but what does the world need? Mm-hmm. And so that, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm a, I'm a Jesuit. Mm-hmm. Because I answer those three questions in a certain way. And I also want to say, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with um, you know, getting a job that, that pays well. Because, you know, you may have to pay back student loans. or You may need to take care of your family. I mean, th- that's okay. Provided you know why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Just to do it, to make a lot of money, is not going to make you happy. But mm-hmm. to make money in order to do something with it that's good for you and others, that's different. But money alone, it's true, will not buy happiness. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing wrong with earning money in order to take care of yourselves and others, to use it in the right way, which will allow you to uh, to serve well and to, to be the person you're meant to be. Mm-hmm. In your book, you mentioned that um, after taking your Jesuit vows, you were sent to India to work in a mm. uh, leprosy hospital, and that sounded like a pretty transformative experience. So, yeah, maybe what was that experience like for you? I joined the Jesuits, uh, and after two years, professed vows as a Jesuit. Um, and that two year is a sort of like a training, like tr- basic training for a Jesuit. You do all sorts of things. Um, but I had an experience of living in Mexico as a younger Jesuit, uh, living and working with the poor, um, and really wanting to do something something else uh, like that. And so after I professed vows, I was sent to Fordham University, where I was studying philosophy. But of course, you, one needs if one's studying graduate philosophy, you need a break. So I asked to have an international experience to really get myself grounded again rather than caught up in the world of ideas. So they sent me to India, to a leprosy hospital in northeast India, where the Jesuits from my part of the country on the East Coast um, had had lived and worked for just decades and decades. So I, I was just immersed in this uh, for eight weeks in this uh, the life of this hospital. By hospital, it was really just a, it was this very large compound that had a, a very, very rudimentary hospital or clinic, a school, like a retirement bungalows, like little shelters for former patients who had leprosy who were still discriminated against. And then there's a little convent there for nuns and then where the Jesuits lived. And at the time, still today, lep- those with leprosy or Hansen's disease still bear the, the marks of the disease, not just physically, but they're discriminated against. So we're tending to people not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally, but without learning, you know, I, most of them spoke a, a, a tribal language, which, which I did not know. And most um, had a religion which I did not share, so Hindi or, or related uh, religion, so or uh, Hinduism or related religion. Um, and uh, so it was a real for, I mean, experience for me of being decentered. I was studying philosophy at Fordham in New York, where, where I was at the center, literally the center of the, the world in so many ways of wealth and privilege and mm-hmm. ideas. And But I was totally decentered. I was in an environment in which I did not know the language, did not share the religion, was out of my comfort zone, with great, lived with great simplicity of life and needing to relate to people in an entirely different way. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it, that's that uh, to be decentered is a good thing because I realize what's most important in life. And what I learned there is, you know, community and relationship because mm-hmm. the people there taught me that for them, for those with leprosy or surviving leprosy, 
they literally will not survive without the support of a community. And they brought me into theirs. Mm -hmm. This very strange man from 8,000 miles away, they just totally brought me in their world. And so that taught me about hospitality. Um, It taught me about welcome and the importance of being out of a comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So as a Jesuit in the 20 years since, I've always tried to put myself in situations where I felt decentered, where I felt needing the hospitality or the teaching of others. Hmm. So a place that that became very important for me in the last decade has been on the border in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Nogales, the Jesuits are working on both sides of the border. And I've gone there myself to, to, uh, to work, to live. I brought student groups from Georgetown where I worked. Mm-hmm. It is so important for me and I would say for us at Santa Clara to be decentered, because mm-hmm. as, as great of a place we are, we're not the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. That there are people who are asking questions that we are not asking mm-hmm. and that we need to listen to. And there are people that we need to encounter, not on our terms, but theirs. Mm-hmm. When you're going into an experience like that in a different country or on the border and you expect that you're going to be decentered, be out of your comfort zone, like what attitude should you bring into that experience? Uh, utter humility. Not, not in a debasing way, but in a humility which truly means openness, mm-hmm. where I don't have all the answers. I'm not controlling. I'm not dictating, mm-hmm. no matter the money or the privilege of the education or whatever I have that it mm-hmm. it's you're encountering the the other as another person mm-hmm. wh- whom I can learn from and who can teach me you know I can come to know across differences mm-hmm. so on the border what I loved well same thing in India um, again I shared I, there was nothing in common ostensibly but I, I eventually learned commonality because I often had to uh, lift them into a wheelchair through human touch, like mm-hmm. appropriate human touch. Like I had to lift them into a wheelchair. Um, my, our natural immunity as North Americans prevents us from getting Hansen's disease. So mm-hmm. I never, there never was a worry that I would get sick. But, but I reconnected on a very human level that I could actually touch them. Mm-hmm lifting them in a real chair, bringing them to the dressing room, mm-hmm. um, uh, shaking a hand or a limb. There's just something extremely humanizing. And at the border, there is a commodore. Just if you walk across the border in Nogales, you walk through this massive infrastructure of walls and fences and pathways. And you get through. On the other side of Nogales, there is a commodore, basically a soup kitchen, very small, mm-hmm. And that's where we would serve a couple meals a day. And the point was just not to serve, but then to hang out. Mm-hmm. I'd practice my inadequate Spanish, but I'd sit there and just talk to folks. And um, and to find that we all, I mean, we're all human and we all have similar hopes and needs. And so I think that's why uh, it's easy in a position. And, you know, as I assume this even more high profile role, Mm-hmm. With there's lots of trappings and attention and people say nice things and I'll go to places and that's all great and good, but it's not in the end that matters, that matters the most. It's about human connection mm-hmm. and community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you discover your passion for education and playing a role in the educational space? Um, 
I think because I always loved education. I went to a Jesuit university. As an, so I went to Georgetown as an undergrad. Um, I thought about being a Jesuit then, but it, I was interested in other things, politics mostly. I went to law school. So I think I've always loved education. I always loved the Jesuit approach to education, which was to sort of mix the liberal arts in with other professional studies and tie education to justice, not just service, but to justice, to think about big questions, to solve big problems. Um, this dialogue between faith and reason that you can bring questions of faith and questions of reason together. They're not opposed, but they mutually inform each other. Um, I just love the Jesuit approach to education. So um, when I became a Jesuit, I, uh, oh, so I should say that after I, um, so went to law school, practice law, the political thing didn't, I eventually realized that was not my path. Mm -hmm. um, was in my mid-20s trying to figure out my life, as happens often to people in their mid-20s, and uh, got an opportunity to teach high school. And it was an unusual offer to make to a practicing lawyer in a successful career, but I I couldn't, the, the offer stuck. I just couldn't get out of my head. Uh, I had no formal training, and I had tutored before and stuff, and was a TA, but... Never any formal training, but I found myself just so excited. So I left my law practice to teach at a Catholic high school and loved it, loved it, loved it. And uh, and when I fell into you know what or you know I, but when my I fell into my Jesuit vocation over the years of teaching, I I uh, when I joined the Jesuits, I quickly knew I wanted to be involved in education, and and it, it just higher ed was sort of the place where I, I taught. Business law, I taught writing, helped teach a writing course. I eventually taught philosophy and ethics, then ultimately theology. But at the time, I was doing administration because I had certain I have certain gifts for that. So it just really developed. And for me, it's uh, I love teaching. Uh, I love learning with students. Um, yeah, I've taught a lot of different things in my life, most recently theology. So I hope it's Santa Clara to be able to teach again in some way. Mm -hmm. um, not the first year, but eventually, because mm -hmm. uh, I like it and I think it's important to be connected mm -hmm. to students in that way and to my fellow faculty members. Um, I've done that at, at the Jesuit School of Theology where I am now. I've, I've been able to teach a course, but it's hard with the competing demands, but I think mm -hmm. it's important. Um, I just really love it. I think it's in the end, that's why Santa Clara is in business. You know, we educate men and women who will change the world. To trans mm -hmm. We transform students who will then transform the world. Mm -hmm. There's no better mission, I think, to be involved in. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of uh, higher ed institutions are going through a, a big period of transition now, kind of with right. increasing technology, and there's all kinds of new educational startups teaching skills and getting people into jobs, right? So are there any kind of trends that you see over the next five or ten years of how higher educational shift or how Santa Clara can be a part of that shift in a positive direction? Yeah, I think, frankly, I think, uh, you know, we see the probably the, the the most amount of innovation in education takes place in high schools. Hmm. So um, I think, we, you know, I think that's where a lot of the innovation began in the last 30 years. You think about your high school experience mm -hmm. in Davis. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was very different than mine would have been in South Florida where I grew up. It just mm -hmm. was, you know, different. And, and there's a way where smaller places can be a little more innovative or creative. Mm -hmm. 
But also having the same student in a classroom for six hours a day mm-hmm. requires adapta- adaptation, innovation, education. So I think we've learned a lot from secondary education that we try to adapt here. Different mod- flipping classrooms, different mm-hmm. um, understanding different learning styles more. Um, realizing the need to teach professors who may not be trained as educators in graduate school, mm-hmm. but our need to teach our professors how to teach better. So we have you know centers here on this campus for teaching excellence, mm-hmm. as most you know, good universities do. So I think um, uh, we our pedagogy innovates, and I think key to that is technology. So we certainly are are we we are slowly adding on more online course experiences, particularly at the graduate level now in, in the law school at the Jesuit School of Theology and the business school. You know, we're student-centered universities for the undergrads, so we're not moving to an online, comp- you know, completely online component on the undergraduate level. But I think, and you could share your own experience, mm-hmm. uh, there certainly can be online or technological enhancements to a classroom experience mm-hmm. on the on the campus here to augment what we're doing in the classroom, to free up professor time, to free up, to, to deliver content in a way online that we then can free up time in class to do other things, mm-hmm. right? So technology as a complement, mm-hmm. not as a replacement, is probably what we're seeing most on the main campus. But in the graduate programs, there's lots of innovation there. So mm-hmm. I think Blunt, make sure we get that right balance between technological innovation and, and traditional um, student faculty relationships because mm. uh, students are learning differently certainly yeah awesome I'd, I'd love to touch on uh, spirituality a, a little bit more so you wrote a book called the Ignatian adventure and I think when when students think of their college experience the word adventure might come to mind right this time right. of growth and change but usually um, that word adventure isn't associated with uh, church right so right. how can spirituality be like an adventure, adventure? yeah yeah well, I think that's how I describe my life. And this would, again, apply to anyone, Christian or mm-hmm. Hindu or Jewish or Muslim or, or whatever, even just a person sort of seeking. I mean, they're, they're demographically in the U.S., and, and, and we see this on this campus, more and more students identify as, as, uh, with no particular religious affiliation. This could mean that they, they have none or they have multiple ones or they just don't know. Mm-hmm. They're sort of working it out, which I think is, I mean, some people may get nervous about that. I actually, I think it's a great opportunity because I think it, that, that openness, that exploration, I think is really great. And what a great place to do that on a Jesuit college campus where we give students the freedom to question. But what we're offering, though, are multiple, you know, different ways of, of, of addressing those questions. We're not running away from answering those questions, but we're saying these are... The, uh, these questions are serious and what are they saying and what might we offer you to to meet your the needs you're expressing so i think um i, I think in the human person is built to question mm-hmm. um i think that shows that uh one is not only alive intellectually but spiritually mm-hmm. so um i think it's natural to describe uh, one who questions as one who's on an adventure because you if your question is sincere and not just rhetorical if your question is not is really open and not simply meant to sort of catch someone or tear someone down. That you're going to be you're going to you're going to be really open to new experiences to grow in a way you hadn't before. So I think as long as we take the questions of students seriously, and one of you know religiously, one of the ways we do that is let's present to them what the religious traditions have offered as answers to those questions. Because mm-hmm. questions that you're many of the questions you you may rephrase them differently than I did. 
uh, as an undergrad, but I bet there are a lot of them the same. And frankly, there are probably a lot of questions were answered 100, asked 100 years ago, mm-hmm. though maybe the questions weren't permitted as much as they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that's really an exciting thing, place to happen, not just in a classroom, in a theology class, but also outside of class, mm-hmm. um, and not to be afraid of the question. Mm-hmm. I, think that, that's, I think God made us that way. And uh, it shows that one's faith, even someone who comes in with a deep faith and then finds himself struggling, I think it, it's it, to assure them it's okay. Like your questions are not a lack of faith. They actually show that a faith is alive. So, and then some people bring a lot of conviction or great examples to people. I, and that's great. But I, I, I certainly went through a lot of questioning when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And look where I ended up, right? Mm-hmm. Here I am, a Jesuit. So, uh, so I think it's good. I think, it's, I think questions define an adventure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I have a couple of questions I like to ask at the end yeah. of every conversation. So um, first of all, if um, there's a new student coming into Santa Clara their first year, what piece of advice would you give them for navigating their college experience? Well, w- one is like everything's going to be okay. Hmm. You have a community of support here. You'll meet people here. Maybe the ones that, that you first meet or, 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 or that early in your career may not be the ones who remain your deepest friends. Um, but everything's gonna be okay. You'll have people here to support you, both classmates and and others, uh, faculty and professionals on campus. So everything is gonna be okay. But I would the advice though I would give that's the encouragement. The advice I would give um, is make sure you put yourself. I guess where I began, decenter yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, be very intentional about putting yourself, immersing yourself in contexts and communities that are different than you mm-hmm. on campus. So. Hang out with people you normally didn't hang out with in, in high school. Or get off campus and work in San Jose in uh, marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. Um, Are there any um, books or news sources or any other materials that have kind of played a big influence in your life or that you often recommend to students who maybe are asking a lot of questions? Questions? Um, yeah, so I, a book that I just think I've just read recently and loved it is uh, Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah, was important that. for anyone to read now who's interested in in questions of race and racism in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, I think it also provides a great example of someone being authentic to who they are. Mm-hmm. It's a story of, of, of also his vocation as a lawyer and as a Christian, as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um the it serves as spiritual writing besides my book. Uh, no, but I think even more so, I think there's a spiritual writer, Henry Nowen, N-O-U-W-E-N, uh, whose writings have really influenced me. He, uh, he wrote a beautiful book called Life of the Beloved, and his, his books are really accessible. And then what, they, what I love is he addresses the longings and questions that most people have. Um, so there's a recent book, uh, you know, Just Mercy, I recently read. But the book that I've always sort of lug around with me is or some of uh, Henry Nowen's, Nowen's book. Mm-hmm. Are there any favorite places that you've traveled to? Hmm. I've been blessed as a Jesuit to, to travel to a lot of different places in the work or education that I just love. Um, I, I mean, this is more general, but I... The sea has always grounded me. So I grew up in Florida, in South Florida, near the coast. So I've always been drawn to the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so 
it's probably one of the reasons why I love being in California. Now the water's much colder than on the East Coast, but um, I, I, I find uh, that's why I love going to Santa Cruz or Half Moon Bay. I, I just find it so grounding, and I, I can just forget about worries. And mm-hmm. um, there's something so literally elemental about going to a beach, which I just just love. Mm-hmm. You know, on this campus, so I. You know, I find uh, I find the mission church just a very peaceful place. Every time I've never been alone in the mission church. Mm-hmm. Every time I walk in there, there's someone there, and I, I know they're not just Catholic. They're just drawn to the quiet or the the beauty of that place. Um, uh, and this time of year, walking under the wisteria in the mission gardens, incredible. Yeah, if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Um, Right now, I would say, please be, let's be more gentle with ourselves and other people. And finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like to you? Uh, Okay, great. So sleep in, um, like really sleep in. For me, that would be sleeping in past eight in the morning, Mm -hmm. uh, which I know is early for most college students. Uh, Sleep in a really big breakfast at a, a local diner. Um, then go on a hike uh, in the hills somewhere, uh, either alone or with friends, but sometimes both have virtues. Um, come back, maybe take a nap, which is a luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the evening, uh, yeah, for me, it would be gathering with friends. I love cooking. I don't get a chance to do that much, but uh, it would be cooking a great meal with good wine with really good friends. Mm-hmm. And with really great conversation that lingers into late into the evening. Because mm-hmm. Sunday is usually a work day for me. I usually say mass somewhere. So I like your question about a Saturday. That, <laughs> that to me sounds like a really good Saturday. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for Yeah, thanks, Gavin. Good luck. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can go to VoicesOfSantaClara.com to check out some partial transcripts on the website, like the Facebook page, and subscribe on the Apple Podcast app. I'll see you next time.